Welcome to How We Win, the official podcast of The Persistence. Action is the best antidote for anxiety, and we can all make a difference right now. Today, we talk about GOP infighting, Supreme Court corruption, lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Then joining us to talk about the epidemic of gun violence and what gives him hope for change is Tom Gabor, the co-author of the powerful new bestseller, American Carnage, Shattering the Myths that Fuel Gun Violence. I'm Steve Pearson. I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And I'm Jessica Creven. And, and this, this is, is How We Win. win. Jen is back, cast and all. Um, yeah. No worse for the wear, though. You're a tough cookie <laughs> and uh, can't stop, won't stop. How are you feeling? I'll survive. I'm doing okay. Thank you. And thanks for holding down the fort while I was out. But yes, mending slowly. It's going to be a healing summer with very little walking for me, but I'm doing all right. <laughs> How are you all? Good. We missed you. We missed you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We did. Um, well, let's let's let you take the the run at the first news item here, then, since uh, you're back and better than ever. Um, yeah. What's top of mind for you this week? Well, there was a lot going on over the last few weeks around the threat of the debt default, and thank you all for your amazing coverage of that. Um, but what happened? today is that uh, some fallout from that, honestly, because the Freedom Caucus, which didn't get what they wanted, thankfully, (laughs) in the whole (laughs) process, um, gave Kevin McCarthy a little bit of embarrassment today in that they thought they were going to pass these amazing messaging bills, which have the hilarious names uh, focused on the boogeyman of gas stoves, of course. That's that's the real problem in America right now, the threat to gas stoves. So the Save Our Gas Stoves Act, the Gas Stove Protection and Freedom Act were supposed to just sweep on through the House, but... Uh, the Freedom Caucus um, actually sabotaged the whole thing, wouldn't even let them get to a vote. So, um, you know, in that procedural way that they blocked it from from even being passed. And so it's um, it's kind of interesting to see the GOP infighting starting to happen more and more. And the real situation that McCarthy has gotten himself in, um, and it's been interesting to watch. And it's so ironic, isn't it, that they're, the infighting is over a bill that would never have passed. It can't right. pass in the Senate. Joe Biden right. would never have passed it. It's a senseless bill, message absolutely bill. needless message bill, as you said. And yet this is where they're going to sort of stick it to him. And it's just such a great reminder that the, the Gas Stove Protection and Freedom Act says to me everything about the Republican Party. That's that what they're, they're fighting to protect. They're just full of a lot of hot air. Well, that too. <laughs> that was too. Yeah. And, and they're toxic and they're mm-hmm. irrelevant and need to be phased out. And that that is what they are fighting for the protection and freedom of our old messages that make no sense. They don't care about Americans. They're not protecting women's rights or trans rights or any rights. They're protecting the rights of a gas stove that, you know, uh, doesn't even really need its rights protected. Uh, that's the GOP in a nutshell, right? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, right. It has nothing to do with people. It has nothing to do with what is actually happening in America and what most Americans need and care about. And the fact, I mean, this is just very classic that they would come to the defense of the gas stove. It's just, it is, it's really, it's part of the like dying dinosaur thing, right? It's like, why are you holding on to the past? You know, induction stoves are fine. We can still do everything we need on an induction stove. I, I know, I don't have one, but I have a friend who has one, and it's they're very cool. Well, not only that, but no one is actually attacking gas stoves. I mean, it's really not actually a thing. It feels yeah. like a plot line out of Veep. Like, when I read it, <laughs> yeah. I thought, this cannot be real. This cannot be real bills, but it was, uh, you know... It, it is, and and this is what it's come down to for the GOP. They're like a parody of themselves, but with very dire consequences. Well, yeah, and to both of your points, like they, um, they keep seizing on these ridiculous issues where they think they can get some kind of traction with their base, some kind of culture war sort of messaging, because you know when they tackle any real issues, they're on the wrong side of it. You know, uh, the Democrats uh, are, uh, are are stand on issues that really matter to Americans are wildly popular with Americans. And anytime Republicans try to talk about something substantive, they're they're on the wrong side of that issue uh, with most Americans. So they have to pull out these asinine, you know, kind of culture war, uh, ridiculous messaging bills and um you know, it, they're pretty damn ineffective, and they don't seem to learn. And it's fun to to uh, see McCarthy um, struggle <laughs> in his in his leadership of the. Uh, I, I put that in air quotes. Leadership of the Republican caucus, but um, you know, it's uh, it's it is scary too. You know, because when you talk about the dinosaurs, you talk about the death rolls of a desperate party. Well, that that party is capable of doing some really desperate and dangerous things when um, when their power is threatened. Uh, so, um, you know, we have to take it seriously, even though the gas stove bill act whatever is very silly. Uh, these are very dangerous people. Yep, no doubt. Um, and speaking of dangerous bad actors, um, Jessica, do you want to talk about uh, the the SCOTUS ruling? Well, sure. I love talking about – no, I don't actually love talking <laughs> about this. But yeah, I, I will. And, you know, we've talked about the Supreme Court already. I haven't even been on this podcast that long, and I feel like we talk about it every week. Mm-hmm. But – uh, I I subscribe to, you know, I'm sure many people here read The Lever, which is a great sort of investigative journalism um, uh, vehicle. And they had a breaking news story this morning, sort of a, a, a deep dive on the connections between Harlan Crow, who we all know is mm-hmm. uh, um, sort of um, funding Clarence Thomas's vacations and, and much more, his mother's house, lots of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harlan Crow and his connections to the the Sackett v. Environmental Protection Agency case, which uh, the Supreme Court ruled last month, five to four ruling, uh, to narrow the scope of the Clean Water Act. Essentially, it is uh, a, a gutting development for environmental protections in our country. It's not popular. Clean air and clean water are top issues for Americans across the ideological spectrum, right? Yep. Everybody agrees we want clean air and water. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Clarence Thomas, of course, was in the majority on this. And it turns out that uh, Harlan Crow, who, you know, it's it's been insisted he has had no business before the court. Well, he does, because this is a case that will affect his 
uh, real estate ventures very directly. And it's very alarming. It's a long article, and I can't go into the whole thing now, but um, there's no question that Harlan Crow has purchased influence on the court and that we are in a major judicial judicial crisis. Uh, yeah, so... Absolutely. Well, and if it's really real, as you say, it's it's a what the Supreme Court decided last month is a real gutting of the what is considered um, a U.S. waterway or whatnot, and so it it actually um, changes it from I think being adjacent to being something adjoining. like that. adjoining. I think it's adjacent to adjoining, or he conflated the two words basically. Yeah, yeah, which is it makes a huge difference, and it was like you know just an unbelievable amount of wetlands that wouldn't no longer be covered by this protection, would no longer be considered protected, um, right. and then could therefore be, you know, utilized by these different companies that this, I think, bombshell that came out just really connected Harlan Crow directly to those companies that have been lobbying for this in front of the Supreme Court. Right. It's absolutely, I mean, and it's a 5-4 decision, so that's huge, because there right. were even some conservatives who didn't yeah. agree with this. So... <laughs> He's the deciding vote right there, and he's completely corrupted. It's it's very it's it, it is a big bombshell. I mean, I hope it gets more coverage because I I thought it was incredible. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of bombshell fatigue when it comes to Clarence Thomas at this sure. point. I mean, we, and the Supreme Court in general. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the good news is, as I was saying uh, before we recorded, that just a few hours ago, uh, there was breaking news that Ron Wyden of the Senate Finance Committee, it feels like he's going to get a little bit more aggressive because Dick Durbin has really kept the gloves on in an unfortunate mm -hmm. way over on the Judiciary Committee. But Ron Wyden uh, is also in a position to subpoena Harlan, uh, Harlan Crow, and, uh, and it sounds as if he is beginning to um, he said, I've begun productive discussions with the Finance Committee on next steps to compel answers to our questions from Mr. Crow, including by subpoena. Uh, so that is encouraging. All hope is not lost. It's going to take a long time to fix this court, but it yeah. can be done, and it starts with that kind of accountability. It does. It's you know, and uh, and we need more people than Sheldon Whitehouse, you know, singing this from the rooftops. You know, he's been a leader in this for a long time, and uh, you know what. All of these uh, electeds who are standing up and trying to take action on this very, very difficult thing to take action on, what they need is us. They need us to be loud. They need us to make yep. our voices heard because as long as public sentiment is quiet about this, as long as we are not uh, you know, making noise, uh, then it's going to be really, really hard for them to get any substantive action on this. And certainly uh, you know, Clarence Thomas enjoys the benefits of a lifetime appointment with no oversight and, and uh, no established norms for uh, you know, really removing a Supreme Court justice. So uh, they can be impeached. It's incredibly difficult, and you know, I, I'm not sure the history behind it. I think it's only happened like twice in our history. Um, uh, that's off the top of my head, so someone will email and correct me on that. <laughs> but um, you know, so our job in this is make some noise, like not just call your reps, but you know, tweet about it, talk to your neighbors. Um, there, there ought to be some organizing. There ought to be some organizing around the Supreme Court. There should be folks out there, you know, marching and and, and rallying and protesting every single day. Um, this is yeah. uh, a fundamental threat to uh, the very fabric of our democracy. We know how, how dire it is. 
Yeah, and and you're right about the fatigue. And we're just at the very beginning of these Supreme Court hits that are going to be rolling out for the rest of June. So we do have to figure out how to talk about it, which I, I think maybe by next week we'll ha I'll have a little bit more intel Ooh. from some of the research that's been being done uh, around how to like knit these different things together. Because if you could talk about all the different horrible things the Supreme Court is doing in different ways and then everybody gets really tired of hearing about it. But what is a, an overarching story that can like get it out to more Americans and, and voters in preparation for next cycle of, you know, what is actually happening and, and how people can feel agency to do something kind of like from the idea of going from despair to defiance. And maybe that's something that mm. we can talk about more. That's great. You know, as I was talking, I was thinking to myself, I really need Jennifer's guidance on the right way to message this. Like, you know, as the words were coming out of my mouth, I'm like, I really need to make sure that that we have a good message around this. So I'm thrilled that you're doing that. Not surprised, of course. Way to win's the best. Mm -hmm. um, so stay tuned for some some guidance for for how we can really be impactful with our words. Um, That's exciting. Yeah. What else, what else do we want to talk about before we move on to – well, we just talked about some action items there, but um. – mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, we, I had just been suggesting that – I think that, it, as Steve said, that an outcry is critical. And, and Americans tend to be sort of uh, reactive instead of uh, proactive when, when this kind of thing is concerned. So we'll make a phone call when we're really angry about something, but then it dies down. And then they sort of think, eh, well, you know, they must not be that – that worked up about it. And and what, you know, if you can set a reminder in your phone for once a week, just, you know, it takes about three minutes to call both of your senators and just say, I want to know whether you have co-sponsored the Judiciary Act yet, because this is one thing we can do is is expand the the judiciary by four seats. There's a huge precedent for it. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, S1616 uh, in the Senate, H.R. 3422, and just ask if they've done that. And also, a shockingly few number of senators have called for Clarence Thomas to resign. And I've said this before. It mm. is a vanishingly small number of senators. And so calling your senators after every news article breaks and saying, have you called for him to resign yet? Like, what's it going to take? Um, they just need to keep hearing that. And, and at some point, there will be a tipping point, uh, but we've got to make it happen. So that would be my my action suggestion. That's great. We will um, remind people and have that in the show notes. Uh, and that's a great, uh, great chop wood carry water item for the week, um, among other things. Also, if you haven't yet, post up all of your pride picks from uh, from last weekend or this month. There's uh, pride events going on all month, and uh, I, I was at a couple of different ones over the weekend, and it's so fun. Um, and, uh, and then also in relation to our interview coming up, uh, we had wear orange, uh, day and, and weekend, uh, recognizing national gun violence prevention day. And, uh, and we're still doing that all month too. So if you have the opportunity to wear orange and post that on your social media, do that as well. I think the other thing to mention in relation to the interview that you're, we're going to have with Tom Gabor is the the tragedy that also happened in Florida, in case people haven't heard about it. It just unfolded actually last Friday, but the more details are coming out. But a, a, a young, pretty young mom, 35-year-old uh, black mother of four in this, I think, more rural part of Florida was, um, was shot through a closed door by a white woman neighbor 
um, you know, of course, she was completely unarmed, and there was uh, some altercation with her children, her young children. I think one of them is three, one of them is nine, you know, 12. Like, these are young kids. And um, it's coming out more and more that this woman was really erratic and was yelling at all the kids who were playing in this apartment complex on the lawn, not even her own, her property. And um, it's just really sad. And, and like you've said, Steve, it's not, um, again, like it happens so much, these, uh, these incidents of gun violence, that it, it's hard to even focus on it. But I think it, what is really scary for me and why I think everyone should know about this is because this is now the second time that an unarmed black person has been shot through a closed door, which is, it's just, it just takes it to this whole other level. It's like, you're not, you're through a door. So like, how yeah. are you a threat? And how do, how is this woman who has not been arrested by the local sheriff saying she's protecting herself via the stand her ground law stand your ground law when she's behind a closed door yeah it makes no sense there's no logic to it yeah yeah no words it's really sad and it's hard it's i know it's easy like we sh you know people don't hear about everything that happens but i did want to bring it up because i think we have to stay alert to this trend of people who are being warped by the you know fox news and this kind of disinformation having guns and shooting innocent people through through their doors it's just it's scary and just the overall gun culture, it, mm -hmm. you know, the, the the fallacy that more guns keep us safer is mm -hmm. just, it, it's just the opposite. The more guns there are, it, the more gun violence there is. It's very simple. It's an absolute corollary. There is no question about it. And in these states where the gun laws have gotten so relaxed, stand your ground laws are just awful. Yeah. And we just, we are going to see more and more of this stuff. There's a, yeah, there's a, we're, yeah. a lot of work to do. To make places like Florida safer. I mean, that's an understatement. But yeah, yeah. Well, we talk about we talk about that uh, and other myths around gun violence uh, with Tom and and his great book. And of course, he co-wrote it with Fred Gutenberg, who is just the most inspiring uh, leader uh, in you know combating gun violence and uh, mm. uh, you know just. An incredible inspiration to all of us. So uh, the book is fantastic and the interview is really moving too. So looking forward to folks hearing that. But uh, before we do that, let's talk about our reasons for hope. Jess, do you want to start? Oh, uh, sure. Well, I uh, somehow in, in, in my wanderings, my, my reading wanderings this week, I found <laughs> this uh, article in Roll Call about a left-behind polling memo. So it was a GOP polling memo that was not meant to be seen externally. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, yeah, that, that basically um, it, it just shows that they are hemorrhaging voters over abortion. Um, that in the last year on the generic Senate ballot, there's been a six-point swing towards Democrats. And uh, on the generic uh, House ballot, there's been a 10-point swing towards mm. Democrats. And and that they are really aware and, and terrified. Um, there's no real way out of the abortion conundrum for them. You know, they can't win primaries if they're not extreme. And they are really starting to see that they are just losing voters at an unsustainable rate um, if they continue with the way they're going, but they're going to continue because they have to. Um, so I'm not happy about the abortion bans. I'm not happy about anything that's happening, but I am at least glad that they are very aware of how bad it is for them electorally because it is and it will continue to be. 
So I guess, I mean, I don't even know if that's a reason for hope. It's just yeah. a reason for schaden, schadenfreude, schadenfreude, I think, Freud. Really. I find schadenfreude. Hope. I find yeah. hope in schadenfreude. And uh, oh, I normally I normally uh, abhor polls, but that one I like a lot. So um, <laughs> Yeah. Well, because it feels true. It feels obvious and true. For yeah. sure. So, yeah. No. That's great. So that's mine. What about you, That's Jennifer? great. Well, I'm going to give a shout out to government uh, working for oh. us. <laughs> being a, an assistant to our success. Uh, no, so um, Biden White House released a, a new website called invest.gov. And the, it's the investing in America work that they passed, you know, of course, over the last um, year in the lead up to the midterms. And it's a it's an interactive website where you can actually click on a map and see all the different projects. There's been $479 billion of investing that's happening in manufacturing, 220 billion around infrastructure and all of the jobs that that is creating and providing all of the, the ways that it's lowering costs for families. So I, I think um, it gives me hope as we continue to uh, dig out of the hole that the GOP has um landed us in just in terms of how people view government. So I think it's important to show government working, to show um, this is what we can do when we when we do things together. And I thought that the rollout of the website was really, was really great. That's awesome. We will put that That's link great. up on our show notes too. And it reminds me of uh, um, what the brilliant Cornell Belcher said when he was on our show, um, that people don't trust government and Democrats are the party of government. So, you know, we're tied together that way. And that's a problem that Democrats have. So the more we can talk about the the wins that our government has, the better it's going to be for us as Democrats. Um, yeah. So that is very helpful. Um, for me, my reason for hope, I'll just say briefly, um, was actually uh, Pride Weekend. Um, there was a, a really... Uh, terrible, yet another terrible, you know, our LGBTQ plus communities are under attack all over the country. Um, and we're not immune to it here in California. A local school mm. had a pride flag that was, you know, uh, on campus burned oh uh, and parents protesting because they didn't like um, the language in an assembly that simply said some uh, kids have two dads and some kids have two moms. Just a simple statement of fact, and there was protest around it. And uh, what I saw around that was a community really coming together to push back on that. And they showed up in force. And um, you know, we're we're post pand we're not post pandemic. Pandemic's still going on. I recognize, but we're out there doing events. Mm -hmm. And Pride, uh, I, I went to two Pride events over the weekend. One was in my own neighborhood in Valley Village, uh, which was like a whole bunch of families coming out with their kids and parading around the neighborhood and, and partying in the, uh, in the park with sign making and all that. It was really fun. And then I went nice. down to WeHo, which is, you know, like the most fun to the go epicenter. down to West Hollywood <laughs> yeah. Pride. Um, you know, maybe rivaled by San Francisco where you are, but, um, but we've, <laughs> we've got one of the best pride parades and events going on. Um, and, uh, it was just so inspiring and fun and joyful and, uh, and what we need. And, um, and so, 
uh, it gave me a lot of hope uh, of us all coming together, um, even amidst you know what has just been an unprecedented few years of attacks against um, against the LGBTQ plus community. So that gives me hope and uh, more pride, please, more pride dancing and parading. <laughs> You're here. I think Amen. my school board representative, Jackie Goldberg, was at that. Uh, was it Satikoy? Satikoy. That's right. Yeah. 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 She was there. Yeah. I heard it was uh, wild, but I, it was it was moving to hear that so many people showed up from our government, you know. Yeah. A lot of elected and, officials uh, and, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, stood in solidarity there. And, and um, so that gave me that gave me hope. And um, and believe it or not, as we're talking about the very dire and heartbreaking uh, epidemic of gun violence in our country, this next interview gave me hope because there are people who are really working to create change and, and we've seen it. So I'm excited for everyone to hear this interview with Tom Gabor. Thomas Gabor is a 30-year professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa and is a consultant and expert witness on gun violence on behalf of numerous international and governmental agencies. He's published over 200 books, articles, and book chapters, including Carnage Enough and Confronting Gun Violence in America. He is now the lead author, along with Fred Gutenberg, of the new bestseller, American Carnage, Shattering the Myths that Fuel Gun Violence. Tom, thank you so much for being here with us today. Great to be with you, Steve. Um, You are, as I read, a veteran criminologist. I love to hear a little bit of origin story from everyone that we talk to. So, you know, what got you into that field? Uh, I guess being an immigrant first to Canada made me feel like a little bit of an outsider. And I guess I empathize with other people who are on the outside of society looking in. Uh, as best as I can understand, um, that's one of the reasons that um, got me interested in the field, as well as some courses that I'd taken. Uh, and then uh, I studied and finished uh, in Canada and then finished up at Ohio State University. And following that, uh, got involved uh, at the University of Ottawa in Canada, been teaching there for 30 years. And uh, since then, uh, I've relocated to the U.S., uh, to Florida, uh, but I've been an international consultant. I've worked for United Nations. I was involved in a case, uh, a Dunblane, Scotland. They had their version of Sandy Hook, mm-hmm. and uh, where children were massacred in school. And I was asked, there was a national commission in the U.K., and I was asked to testify at that commission about the role that guns and the accessibility of guns can play in violence. And I've served as a um, consultant ever since, and I've written five books in the area of gun violence. The most recent, as you mentioned, is American Carnage. I've written three others over the last six or seven years, prompted by Trayvon Martin's shooting. That mm. was very pivotal to me and got me going on this track over the last 10 years where I've specialized specifically in relation to gun violence. Uh, a lot of follow-up there. First of all, just to note, of course, that uh, that tragic shooting in Scotland led to some real substantial uh, gun laws there as well, right? That is correct. Handguns were virtually banned other than 
in shooting sports and people have to keep their guns. They can't bring them home. They keep them at the club, which I think is a great idea because a lot of things happen when guns are in the home. Mm -hmm. A lot of bad things happen in particular. Uh, so they did uh, have a very dramatic uh, change in England and pursuant to that, uh, some considerable reductions in gun violence as well. Yeah. So it turns out that uh, that kind of legislation really can save lives, <laughs> which you know, seems obvious, but something that we need to say over and over again here uh, in the United States. We think so. Uh, you know, there are other factors involved, social factors, economic inequality seems to be a big factor. We have an epidemic of loneliness in the country, which I think is driving some of the shooters. Hmm. So I would never pretend that the only factor is easy access to guns. But when you have a combination of many people who are experiencing distress, along with easy access to firearms, and the surrounding culture also teaches them that one of the ways you resolve problems is through the use of a gun. That's a dangerous mix. Mm. Yeah. I want to talk about your recent book that you've written with Fred Gutenberg. And, um, you know, Fred is such a heroic figure to so many of us, someone who took just an unspeakable tragedy in his own life that would make most of us just check out and instead has been a leading, if not the leading advocate for gun safety and just a, a relentless and, and passionate voice. What was it like uh, for you working with him on this book? You know, it's an honor for me to work with him because I think you're, you're right. He is the most prominent activist in the country and advocate for change. Um, and uh, we had a previous exchanges since the heartbreaking death of his daughter. And I started this book on misinformation because American Carnage deals with misinformation and all the myths about gun violence. And I invited him in and he was uh, happy to participate. And he's just been a delight to work with. And uh, when our book was released on the 2nd of May, we went on a quite a unique not just media tour, but we uh, spent a week in mid-May in um, Washington distributing our book, personally delivering it to every member of Congress. Mm. We also had a chance to address the House Democratic Caucus, and then we were invited to the White House to brief them on our findings. So it's been uh, quite a journey. Uh, it's obviously a very bittersweet one for him, uh, but, you know, he, in the in name of his daughter, and then also in the interests of children going forward, he wants to stop this plague in the United States, this plague that sees children concerned that they're not going to come out of school alive and parents concerned about dropping off their kids. But we know it's beyond the schools because we see shootings in just about every setting from shopping malls to theaters to places of worship to concerts and so forth. So nobody's really immune from it. But, I, you know, I've been working with him. I don't know anybody who works harder. So it's an absolute honor uh, to, to collaborate with him. I can imagine. And, you know, as... 
someone who has a daughter who uh, would be roughly the same age as Fred's daughter. Um, his story has hit home for me, obviously, and, and, and it's been like I have tremendous empathy, but also like terrified in a way, you know, just to be honest, to have conversations with folks who have had this loss that is so unthinkable to myself. And it's just, uh, you know, the tragedy is so overwhelming. Um, I, I just, he gives me so much hope uh, in his ability. He must just be exhausted, but his ability to get up there and talk about his experience and be an advocate for other families. Um, he's a special person. He really is. He is. And, you know, you mentioned, Steve, that, you know, it's it's so hard even to talk to somebody who you know has been a survivor of gun violence, had a family member and so forth involved uh, with gun violence. Unfortunately, now we have 52% of Americans, yeah. according to the most recent polls, have had some personal experience with gun violence, whether it is themselves having been shot or intimidated with a gun, a family member being shot, or having witnessed an act of gun violence. So there are many of us out there, and I think the worst thing that we can possibly do, as difficult as it is, to deal with the subject. And some people say, I'd love to read your book, but I just can't handle it. Right. Is the worst thing we can do is put our heads in the sand yeah. uh, and nothing is going to get done. You know, this is a very se serious crisis that ultimately, I think, if it continues, will impact the economy as well as everything else in a dramatic way. I know people who will not go to a shopping mall now, a crowded mall, mm -hmm. uh, for fear of getting shot. So they order online. So if this uh, adjustment or adaptation to the situation becomes more widespread, what's going to happen to shopping areas? What's going to happen to our town centers and so forth? So it's a, it's a crisis that needs to be addressed head on. And one of the things we do in American Carnage is we list a number of things that the average citizen can do. Mm. Because I know that, you know, there's a feeling out there uh, of impotence. People feel there's nothing that is ever going to be done because the gun lobby is so powerful and nothing was done after Sandy Hook. So it means nothing ever will be done. But I keep reminding them that, you know, a lot of important things took a long time, whether it was the woman, women getting a vote, uh, civil rights legislation. Some of these things don't happen overnight, but we've got to start somewhere. And there's a lot of things that citizens can do. And we discuss that in the book. Well, I love that. And you kind of teed that up perfectly for, for us because our show is all about getting people into action. And, and our listeners are volunteers and activists who want to take action, who don't put the, the covers over their heads uh, and, and want to tackle the hard things. And... Um, uh, also, one thing that you didn't mention, you know, like there's this, the effects of gun violence is, is terrible into the economy, of course, but also it's the leading cause of death for our young people, for kids mm -hmm. under the age of 20. I mean, as a society, if we can't take care of our kids, you know, what are we doing? Like, where are our priorities? It's, uh, it's really hard to wrap our heads around that fact that gun violence is the number one killer of children right now. Absolutely. So if we claim, you know, as a lot of people do, that we're for family values right. and so forth, 
then we've got to walk the walk and not just talk the talk and take affirmative action to do something about it. We have almost 50,000 people every year now dying in America due to gunfire, aside from what you've already said. And when we look at also compare women in our society compared to women in other you know, advanced societies, they're far more in peril here yeah. than elsewhere. Um, so we see that people of color are disproportionately affected. So um, uh, we have a lot of work to do. And as I say, it's, uh, there was a recent poll that showed that almost a, a third of Americans either avoid going to certain places, as I mentioned before, gave the example of the mall, mm -hmm. uh, or have considered avoiding certain places and activities. So I also ask, is that freedom? You know, because some people talk about, you know, guns are freedom. You know, let's have a nation of washing guns. And if people are terrified and kids are terrified in school and traumatized uh, with these active shooter drills and so forth. Yeah. And parents are scared to death about dropping off their kids and whether they're going to see them at the end of the day. That's not freedom no. in our view. All right. So let's talk about your book. And uh, you, as you mentioned, it talks about the myths that fuel gun violence. So um, what are what are the main points? What are the main myths that are, are fueling this uh, this terrible epidemic in our country? Well, you know, one of the central myths, Steve, is that an armed society is a safer society or a right. more, more polite society. You know, that's one of the slogans. <laughs> um, and uh you know, since the 1980s, uh, we've had a far more extremist National Rifle Association, in particular, has been promoting this myth that uh, more arms, you know, uh, will lead us to be safer. So we should carry guns and have guns in our home. And uh, uh, unfortunately, this message that has been repeated often and uh, with the slogans and, you know, the only thing that stops a, a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, you know, all of this. And guns don't kill, people kill. And mm -hmm. we hear these slogans and it's part of this campaign uh, because the gun industry was in trouble uh, financially in the 1980s. So this new narrative came about uh, before it was guns were used for hunting and sport shooting and so forth. This new narrative of the armed citizen as being, you know, the only hope that stands between us and complete society descending into chaos. And what we have is quite the opposite of being more safe. When we look at almost any indicator in recent years, mass shootings have doubled over the last six or seven years. Mm -hmm. uh, once again, kids now, number one cause of death is gunfire, not car accidents. Yeah. Um, or drowning in swimming pools or something like that. And um, we see uh, uh, so many more road rage incidents, for example, involving firearms, uh, because it's not just, uh, you know, the gun lobby would have us believe that it's, um, uh, you know, just the so-called hardened criminal who's a threat. When you have individuals in a dispute and guns are available and accessible, uh, sometimes they're deployed in spontaneous arguments. And we're seeing because carrying of guns on a daily basis has gone up fivefold 
in the last six years hmm. in the country. So millions more are now carrying guns on a regular basis. And so it's not surprising we see more mass shootings at parties and more of these road rage incidents. These are spontaneous incidents that escalate because guns are around. Uh, so that's a big one, uh, you know, the, the myth of the armed citizen. Um, another one that we often hear, you know, people say, well, it's only happening over there, meaning the inner city, people of color, so I don't have to worry about it. Mm. Well, yes, there are areas, demographics that have higher rates and experience higher rates of gun violence, but this is happening everywhere now. In fact, uh, well, if you look at some of the mass shootings, the biggest mass shootings that we've seen in America, whether it's um, Sandy Hook, which was a small town, Parkland, a suburb, right. Columbine, a suburb, you know, there are an equal number, if not more, uh, Sutherland Springs, Texas is another one, a church shooting in a very mm -hmm. small town. Um, nobody's immune. And in fact, I've seen some data re recently that shows that the top 20 counties in America with the highest levels of gun homicide, 13 are rural. So, uh, you know, it's not just happening in one place. Uh, it's happening in rural areas. It's happening across the country. It, we've seen mass shootings at virtually every kind of setting. So nobody's immune. And we all have skin in the game in dealing with this plague. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that brings us to what we can do about it. I mean, this is... Uh, Excellent timing, of course. Well, I mean, it's always good timing to have this conversation. We need to have it more. But we just last weekend was gun violence uh, um, awareness day, wear orange from the Gifford group and Moms Demand Action and um, all, all the groups that coalesce to really bring awareness, you know, to this issue that we're all really aware of anyway, because as you said, no one escapes it now. So, so what can we do as volunteers and activists right now? What are, what are the initiatives that we can make an impact on? Well, Steve, first I'll say, unfortunately, this is always a timely discussion. Yeah, now, yeah exactly. Because we're seeing more than one mass shooting a day in America, closer to two on average. And, you know, I just put out a tweet Following the Memorial Day weekend, there were 21 mass shootings wow. from the Friday through the Monday. So it's always topical these days, unfortunately, and summer tends to be worse. And we're on a record pace this year, record in terms of the number of mass shootings, but also the number of casualties mm. per mass shooting. Now, as far as solutions are concerned, I'm a big believer, not just in expanding background checks, because we hear that a lot, you know, that... Uh, because in, in the United States, under federal law, if you have a private sale, the person, the purchaser doesn't need to undergo a background check, just if right. the, the uh, transaction is through a licensed dealer. So obviously, we need to do something about that loophole, but we need to do much more. I'm a big believer in a licensing system that you see in pretty well every other advanced country where a person, before they acquire a gun, has to obtain a license, they have to go to law enforcement, they're interviewed, they're reference checks, because this two-minute background check system we have in the United States, which incidentally was designed by the NRA. Yeah. It's an instant check, two minutes, just looks at three 
computer base databases uh, possessed by the FBI. And if the person doesn't have a criminal record, a felony record, uh, they can purchase a gun. Uh, so this check doesn't really look at uh, instances of instability, of violence in the home, and so forth. That's why you need reference checks. You know, the Parkland shooter, there were so many red flags. Uh, every every student in that school could have told you he's going to be the next shooter. Mm -hmm. uh, he threatened, he abused animals, he did all kinds of different things that came to the attention of the authorities. But technically speaking, he did not have a criminal record on his file and he could go purchase his AR-15 style rifle. Mm. So uh, we need a, a much more thorough system of vetting who gets a firearm as well as um, training, that's part of it in many countries, training by law enforcement in not only the safe handling of firearms and marksmanship, but also in understanding when it's appropriate to use lethal force. Um, the, the training that goes on, and we have 26 states now that have permitless carry, which means no training, no education at yeah. all on guns, the safe handling of guns or the law. Uh, but even in those states that have some permit, and we had permitting in, in Florida, and which is going to disappear in July, it's a bogus type of training that goes on. Uh, so we need a much more thorough system. Obviously, assault weapons. I'd like to see weapons that are capable of mass casualty incidents to be either they're more tightly regulated or disappearing. Now, the Australians are the best example of a country that took this head on back in 1996. Yep. And uh, they bought back weapons from people realizing that that had, you know, they weren't going to think of that had some monetary value. So they bought it back. They paid them a fair market price and they literally melted down a third of all firearms in Australia. They've had just one public mass shooting since 1996 in that country. So an illustration of what happens when you're determined to do something about it. And Australia, by the way, has a strong gun lobby. They have a strong frontier history and history of gun ownership, but, and they also have a system where the state laws were made mostly by the states. Uh, so that changed as a result of a determination to do something. So what we need, Steve, is we need outrage. You know, in Australia, 90% of the population demanded change. You know, we're getting close now. The last Fox News poll, no less, found that over 80% of Americans support, whether it's expanding background checks, raising the age for gun purchases, red flag laws, and other measures. Mm -hmm. So we're getting to the point where people are getting fed up with these daily shootings want something done about it. So we need more outrage. So when you say, what can we do? I could list you a whole pile of solutions that government can do, mm -hmm. but the population needs to do specific things. The most important thing is vote, but vote for candidates, not who make general statements about dealing with gun violence, but specifically what policies will they support? Will they support an assault weapons ban? Will they support a licensing system? Will they support red flag laws? Because then if they don't follow through, they can be held accountable. Yeah. So that's important. And then 
There's a lot of things that citizens can do. I'll give you a couple of examples. One is consumer activism, putting pressure on businesses that sell these types of firearms by refusing to go into those stores. Uh, there's also uh, uh, different types of investor activism where you tell your broker if you have a portfolio that I don't want to invest in any companies right. that are in the gun industry, that type of thing. And uh, there's more than that uh, as an investment investor. But uh, so there's a whole series of things that people can do. But the most important is to get out there and vote, vote for candidates who are strong in this area, make strong commitments. And, you know, we're seeing more of that in Congress today. We have a great young leader here, Maxwell Frost, yep. 25 years of age in the Orlando area. He's been on our justices. show and I, and he was yeah. out here in California at our, at our convention uh, the weekend before last. I got to catch up with him there. He's, he's amazing. Excellent. Very impressive young man. Two of the Justins in Tennessee. You know, that's the kind of leadership we're starting to see around mm -hmm. the country. We need to vote those people in because what's more important? Than gun violence and you know this is where people advocates for change we've been uh, what should i say outworked by the crowd that supports more gun rights they tend to be more active they're single issue voters they pester their uh, members of congress they donate more to political campaigns so we need yep. more activism on the part of the general population as well well, we have our marching orders, and I know that our, our listeners all feel feel as passionately about it as you do. And um, uh, we have time for one more question before I let you go, and um, and this is one that we ask all of our guests, and it's, it's a, a really tough one when you look at the long arc of trying to get some legislation passed on gun violence, but what gives you the most hope right now? Well, a couple of things. Number one, as I mentioned, the polling shows that an increasing percentage of Americans, and it's not a linear trend, but we've seen so many incidents recently and so many of those incidents where any one of us can be involved, you know, the, somebody knocking on the wrong door, pulling in the wrong, wrong driveway, yeah. going into a wrong car. I've done that multiple times. And uh, there's a shooting <laughs> as a result. So... Um, you know, this has stirred up the American people, I think, and people realize that nobody's immune from gun violence and something has to be done about it. So I think some of the recent polling is encouraging. I'll give you one other example. We're seeing more young people involved. You know, there's a group called Students Demand Action, yeah. which is part of the same group of, as Moms Demand Action. And I it was told last week that their number of chapters has grown doubled around the country. So that's an indication that young people are getting more involved. We need them involved and we need them voting. So those are a couple of things that make me hopeful. That's great. Tom, thank you so much for your work. Uh, it's so important. Uh, once again, the name of yours and Fred Gutenberg's book is American Carnage, Shattering the Myths That Fuels Gun Violence. And uh, it's available everywhere. It's already a bestseller. And uh, I'm just so grateful for your work. And thanks for being here on the show. Thanks, Steve. A pleasure to be with you.
Thank you so much for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. We want to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com or find us on social at howwewinpod, at bluesboysteve, at Jen Ancona, and at jesscraven101. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods and share our show with your friends and family. There's always work to do, so we'll be back with more next Wednesday.